Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Have you ever heard of the opera about the Irish pub? No, seriously. But it wasn't performed in Milan's La Scala or even in the Wexford Opera House. And it wasn't performed by your regular operatic performers bellowing out in German or Italian. This is the story of the lost and then found film shot in O'Donoghue's pub on Marion Row, starring the Dubliners. Welcome to Publin, a podcast about the culture, history and heritage of pubs at home and abroad. On today's episode, I'm talking about the most unlikely of things, an opera filmed in and about a pub. It's a story that captures a place in time and a music scene that's centred around one location. O'Donoghue's pub on Marion Row in the 1960s was the epicentre for traditional Irish folk music and the revival that was going on at the time. It was the place to be for anyone who wanted to listen to or be part of that scene. The pub hosted nightly music sessions with some of the best and most influential musicians of the time, including Andy Irvine, the McKenna Brothers, the Furies, Seamus Ennis, and of course... The Dubliners. The Dubliners, for anyone who didn't know, were the embodiment of the Irish trad folk revival going on at the time. A group of fiercely talented and fiercely Dublin musicians who were known for their full, thick beards and their fondness for a drop of stout, as well, of course, for their musical achievements. They formed in 1962 and later would go on to have fame and notoriety in Ireland that then brought them overseas, making them an internationally recognised act. But first, there was O'Donoghue's, a pub that they would be inextricably linked to for the rest of their careers. It was here that they, and others, made names for themselves as entertainers and drinkers. The Dubliners' lineup over the years was liable to change, with members coming and going. During the time that this film was made, Luke Kelly had temporarily left the group. The group consisted of Ronnie Drew on vocals and guitar, Kieran Burke on vocals, guitar and tin whistle, Barney McKenna on banjo, mandolin and vocals, and John Sheehan on the fiddle, mandolin, concertina and tin whistle. 
1965, producer and director Kevin Sheldon, a regular in O'Donoghue's who was working in RTE, teamed up with the group to create the most unlikely of vehicles for them, an opera consisting of traditional Irish folk music. I'll go into more detail on the plot later, but the film was based on the 18th century song The Night Before Larry Got Stretched, which is referred to as an Irish execution ballad. It was played out in good fun as a knowingly mock opera that acknowledged their acting talents as somewhat lacking, but also captured the musicians at their best. Initial funding for the film was sourced, a crew hired, and off they went, shooting in O'Donoghue's Kilmainham and in the Liberties. All of the photography was done and captured, but then the film ran out of money. That was 1965. In the years following, it became apparent that the money simply wasn't there to finish the film, and it lapsed out of memory as people went on with their lives. That is, until in the 1990s, what was left of the film came into the hands of a man named Shay Mary Doyle, who set about restoring and editing the film to bring it back to life. The film was screened at a premiere in 1998 in the Irish Film Institute with the Dubliners in attendance. The 35mm film elements are now preserved for posterity in the IFI, where they're taken out every now and then. I was lucky enough to catch a screening of the film on the big screen for the Temple Bar Tradfest in January of this year, 2023. That's the shorthand of how the film came to be, and then be once more. But what's far more interesting, and entertaining, is the film itself. But before I take you through that, I want to introduce you to the man who brought the film back to life. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm basically, my name is Shay Mary Doyle. Uh, I'm a film director exclusively on documentary. Uh, I started in the theatre with Jim Sheridan, Liam Neeson, and all those boys in the Project Arts Centre. And somewhere along the line, I was in lighting design, stage directing, a little bit of acting. I ended up working on a documentary with the great Louis Marcus, and I just said, this is for me, so I became a documentary filmmaker and still at it. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of films, uh, a lot of Dublin films, James Gandon, A Life, Alive, Alive, O, A Requiem for Dublin, you know, John Henry Foley, and then some international documentaries, John Ford, Dreaming the Quiet Man, would be the most well-known with Martin Scorsese and Peter Bogdanovich and Maureen O'Hara. So, you know, I, I basically, I'm very interested in history or culture, you know, and society, you know, uh, in general. But it was really Tom Hayes, the legendary Tom Hayes. He he came to me along with Tony McMahon. He had, a, a, everybody was going around Dublin. And whatever happened, I don't know who's happened, whatever happened to that film, and uh, it had gone bankrupt, essentially. Uh, Kevin Sheldon, the, the director, was an Englishman who was working in RT, and he was in, very taken with the trad scene here in Dublin. So they, they said about making the film and then they hit all sorts of obstacles and so forth. And uh, then Tom brought it to me. He was delighted. He was almost crying because a lot of people just said, go away. And I worked on film. I knew film, what film was and I had to deal with it. I had no infrastructure around me. Uh, I used to tell people that, you know, the great historian in the UK was Kevin Brownlow. You know, and, and this film, if it in his hands, people would have been there with white coats. Not much interest in Ireland to restore the film. Managed to wangle a few ball from RTE that covered certain things, that little sound mix and uh, so forth. So it was very interesting to do. The film had certain shots missing, which I, I had to reimagine, particularly a girl drawing a, a picture of Ronnie, which I got an artist in to do that. And all the, what we call the Foley, the additional sound effects. There were some scenes that had no sound. So I, I ended up imitating Ronnie Drew in a low voice while he was being arrested. But it, it, it took a good year 
you know, I mean, not constantly, but trying to all the different fragments that I had, you know, to try and save the film. The negative is gone. I, we had a big search for that. All, all there was was what we called a rough cut film. And so I had to clean, learn how to clean film every frame. It was about a month ago to the Dublin Film Festival. And I said, okay, this girl said, oh, no, it's too late. But I said, oh, have a look at it. And she loved it. And so then the premiere happened. The Dubliners, uh, most of them came. Those were alive. Ronnie was there. Barney was there. John Sheen was there. A lot of the cast was there. The Grehan sisters, God bless them, they were there. They, they sing a song in the film. One I had managed to get find all as much as the cast who are now coming to the premiere of the film almost 30 years later, you know. Uh, I got Guinness to sponsor it. There's a lot of Guinness in the film and there was a lot of Guinness drank that night. I don't know, it, it went into its cult status then as word filtered out. And uh, that's really, that screening during the night has been the first screening since that premiere, which I think was 1998. The film starts in an inventive manner, doing all of the title sequence in camera using what they had to hand. The name of the film is presented painted on the window of a Donoghue's pub on Marion Row and the music fades in. We're then shown the names of the principal characters and actors involved, including Ronnie Drew, using names written in marker on stools placed down in front of tables in the fashion in which a barman would get the pub ready for opening. Ronnie Drew is framed, singing I'll Tell Me Ma, surrounded by the rest of the Dubliners on their instruments, and in front of a casual audience, supping their pints and tapping along to the music. The scene of the pub is thus set. In walks a young woman carrying a sketch pad as the Grehan sisters are belting out the merry ploughboy. The woman takes a seat and begins to sketch Ronnie, who takes notice and is apparently pleased with his ego being stroked. The musician Johnny Moynihan shares the table with the young lady and is asked to give the crowd a rendition of the song The Night Before Larry Got Stretched. A hush descends over the room, somewhat enforced by a few shushes, and he begins to sing. The camera closes in on Ronnie Drew and transitions to the same man, but a different character, behind the bars of an 18th century prison cell, while Johnny Moynihan, still in camera, continues to sing, taking the form of the musical narrator. Ronnie Drew has now become Larry, and it's apparent that he's been caught for some crime or other that we are yet to understand. He's joined by visitors to the cell, the other Dubliners, who sit around a table in the shape of his own coffin. Larry holds forth and begins to tell them his story. I'll tell you the cause of me downfall. Women. So, in that opening sequence, we see some of the characters that made up the Irish traditional music scene in O'Donoghue's, but were there any actors used? I asked Shay, were they regulars in the pub, and were they the real barmen? That, no, that's Tom O'Donoghue. That's the barman. He, right. That is Mr. O'Donoghue. Most of the people in the bar were, to a great degree, some of them drinking. But a, a, a man came around, James Behan, to the film. You know, he was telling me that during the film, they weren't allowed in. They took over the whole bar. And there's no real actors in the film. You know, that was also another wonderful thing about it. I mean, Maeve Mulvaney, to a degree... Sheldon got great performances. Anarchistic style of filmmaking. I mean, there's a plot, but like the film starts in the modern day. Somebody asks Johnny Minehunt to sing The Night That Larry Got Stretched, and then all of a sudden you're back in a prison cell. And and then Ronnie's going around with a burglar's kit, like from the 1800s or something. And then all of a sudden, towards the end of the film, what I call the hanging scene, they're all wearing duffel coats. It's, it's just like, okay, today we're in the past, now we're not, you know break all the rules. It was very Brechtian. 
I mentioned to Shay about Andy Irvine's song called O'Donoghue's. I know, I, I love that track. I, I filmed Andy in London. He, he's like Bob Dylan. He's always on the never-ending tour. Yeah. <laughs> and he's in the film, not a major property. He's in the room, but uh, he, unfortunately, he was in Bucharest the night the film was on. You know? And it's really interesting that he, he didn't get a part in it because actually Andy was an actor. That's why he came to Dublin. He was acting. He was drinking in, near his bar. And, and as he says to me, all the actors, hello, darling. And one guy says, well, what are you doing here? And he took him up to his bar. And he, he, he never looked back. He, he became part of the Dublin Transit, you know, which was you know, ultimately Planksty and all the rest of it. You know? But it was interesting that here was an actual actor that wasn't offered a part. No actors required. Given that Shea had such an interest in completing this project 30 years later and creating a permanent cinematic monument to this group and this pub, I asked him what his personal connection was to the pub, if any. And if he would have been around the sessions, but I don't. I went in occasionally. I, I am now and have been for a long time a, a, a great lover of trad. But I, I wasn't. It's very interesting. Pretty much the opening shot of the film, the wide shot, where the girl who's going to paint Ronnie, and you can see all these trad heads with beards and sweaters, and but also there's a couple of people. There's one guy in there. He has kind of velvet underground glasses. As somebody once said to me that trad musicians could well be going home to listen to Led Zeppelin as well as to Trad. You had these two things going on, which later in, in another time would mean Sinead O'Connor could do Irish, but could also do punk, you know. You know, it, it was, Trad was very strong, I think, in Dublin, and the Dubliners really were the ones that propelled it out to a bigger audience. And then, of course, it got to number one with Seven Drunken Nights, and you know, they became, you know, internationally. But at that time, Dublin was their kingdom and, and, and touring the rest of the country. The dimensions of the pub are hard to work out for the film as they seem to possibly reuse some areas and the place is filled with people. I asked Shay if it was the front snug-like area that was used for the film or the back room. It's hard to figure out, but, you know, it's, it's essentially that room. But I think that the corridor out was much more wider because the girl walks away, you know, I think that's maybe is now the extension, you know. I'm not quite sure. I found out later that the, the prison scene was shot, I think, out in Cremainham, um, in some old building. There was a couple of different locations. But essentially, you know, that, that room is so, if you can, you'll actually see those photographs worth having a look. third and fourth scenes of the film, we see Larry before his incarceration, first at home with his doting wife, who he treats poorly. He deposits his ill-gotten gains of the day's labour and lauds himself as the best thief in all of Ireland. He has himself a bottle of porter, the first of many, and heads off in the direction of O'Donoghue's Sheebeen to spend time with his friends and his mistress. Before entering the pub, he notices a wanted poster with his likeness upon it and stops to admire himself, fixing his disguise, which isn't really a disguise at all. While at the pub, he has a few jars, kisses his girl, and sings a few songs with his pals. But the night comes a cropper when he slights his mistress and she runs off to tell the local constabulary of his misdeeds and his current location. Upon leaving the bar, he's arrested and is placed in jail where we first met him and Johnny Moynihan continues his song and narration. Ronnie is more comfortable on camera than the rest of the Dubliners, but none of them are professional actors. So does this add to or take away from the film? 
Or is the joking tone of the opera enough to give the lads a pass? I think so. And also the film, in a way, lent itself to Dublin humour. You know, so that was something that particularly the Dubliners and Ronnie, I mean, Ronnie plays the lead and, and plays it very well. The image, his image on the screen is incredible, you know, it really suits the black and white uh, imagery. I think that's where I loved about it more on Saturday night than anything else. That one, these are real people. In a lot of cases, there's a lot of singing. So the Grand Sisters, the three girls, really uh, lashing it out. John Malloy, the, the, the famous Irish doctor, he's he's there, but he's only he's an extra in the bar. He just raises his point. Uh, Tony McMahon is there playing his accordion. You know, so you've got some of the great musicians of the time also participating. The McKennas. I think the music, the fact that it was a musical and it was a musical based in essence on Irish crowd made made everybody comfortable as non-actors. Whereas if you were doing something didn't have that envelope, it would have been much more difficult for them. I'd say there was certainly the plot was there, but I'd say a lot of the script was improvised to suit the language of the art. Nate Mulvaney says to his wife, I I tried, I really tried. And he says, Yes, you were very trying. I, I'd say Ronnie came up with that. The time has now nearly arrived for Larry to accept his fate and meet his maker. On the titular night, Larry sits in his cell in the company of his pals, sharing a few last bottles of Guinness Porter. Watching this film would put a fierce thirst on any woman or man for a bottle of Guinness, whether they enjoyed the black stuff or not. His companions at the pre-wake share morbid stories of observing other hangings where the victim either didn't die immediately or had their head torn clean off. Larry can't take this anymore and banishes them from his cell, temporarily, and only to go off back to O'Donoghue's to get a few more bottles in. After his pals have left, both Larry's wife and his mistress come to see him at the same time. He's unrepentant in his love for both women, and they duet a song in which they both profess to love him with all of their hearts, despite the fact that he's a complete bollocks. After his interaction with the two women, who he does indeed love, he's now thirstier for a drink than ever, and stares down the lens of the camera, and without an ounce of humour states, Jays, I'm dry. Meanwhile, his comrades sit in the nearby pub, wetting the whistle and singing a wonderful a cappella version of the song, Jug of Punch, while two women sit on their laps. The table is strewn with burning candles and half-drank bottles of porter, and it's worth noting that, by all accounts, these bottles were unlikely to have been just mere props. An opera is not necessarily the most accessible form of media, so I wondered how hard a sell this film would be, even starring folk heroes like the Dubliners, and whether such a venture could ever have hoped to have turned a profit. Yeah, it could have. You know, it was funny, actually, because when I was restoring it, or around the time I was restoring it, I met John Carney, the director we made once. He was telling me, oh, hey, Shay, I'm going to make Ireland's first musical. I said, sorry, John, no. There's one which I've just restored, his uh, opera. I don't know. One has to try and imagine filmmaking in Dublin then on any level. There was no real Irish film industry. There was no real support for Irish film. If anybody could find the, the few Bob, it would have been Tom Hayes. He, he was pretty good at that. But the few Bob that they got obviously wasn't enough. The Dubliners, I think everybody kind of enjoyed the vibe. As you can see in the film, they were long days. And you could see Ronnie and the boys getting a little bit more drunk, real drunk, as the film went on. So I think they had great fun. It was shot, I don't know, over a period of days, but it was hard work. You know, it was hard work, but somehow they did it. I say Tom Hayes was the great one who kept the wheels moving, you know. 
Alas, for Larry, there is no reprieve or escape, and he is brought forward towards the gallows on a horse and cart. Some soon-to-be mourners have turned up to observe the execution, and reflecting the budget of the film, several of them were wearing duffel coats and other contemporary clothes, as well as holding umbrellas above their heads. Naturally, someone in the crowd is handing out bottles of Guinness to the onlookers. Standing atop the gallows, Larry asks the crowd, Is there any kind soul here present that would take pity on a thirsty man? And so, he has a last drop before he's hung, sharing the bottle with his executioner and offering it to the priest who stood beside him. As the noose is put around his neck and tightened, he begins to sing a beautiful and shortened rendition of the song, The Parting Glass, and then he is hung and is no more for now. Johnny Moynihan sings his lament for poor Larry over the burial scene, but Larry isn't done yet and comes back to haunt his wife at night. And of course, ghost Larry can't help himself and necks a bottle of porter from beyond the grave. It's such a creative film that contains so many talented people. Given that it's a bit of a cult film, I wonder could it be remade today with contemporary folk musicians. My pick would be to set it in The Cobblestone, the natural successor to O'Donoghue's, with Lancome playing the part of the Dubliners and John Francis Flynn playing the Johnny Moynihan part. I didn't put these specific ideas to Shay, but asked him if he thought it was lightning in a bottle or whether it could be done again. I don't think so, because I think musicians, they're a million miles away from the chaos that happened in that bar. All, all of that, you know, even in London, all the famous Irish spots where people only had like the Galtimore and different bars. So it's all essentially gone. It's still strong, but it's not the same drinking culture even. You know, the drinking culture is, is different now. People are more moderate or whatever. But if anybody should like to try and make it, uh, they're more than welcome. Really. I, I personally, I'd be worried about you know, I, I'd probably, even though I had the greatest people in the world, probably wouldn't stand up to that raggy little film we saw on Saturday. I don't people would have the imagination even of how to break the rules in such a way in, in the making of a film. I mean, I'm, I, I'm astounded at the very end of the film when money goes to get hanged up at Christ Church. And you can see the rain is bucketing down. I mean, it is pouring rain in, in that scene and they're all enduring it. Right in the midst of all, the camera... Uh, there's an incredible move where he manages to get the rope around Ronnie uh, and the spire of Christ Church into the frame, you know. So you have all these kind of devices, creative devices that are, are being made in the film, you know. We return to a Dunahue's of the present day, in the context of the film, where the song has ended and the barman is calling time and collecting glasses. The final song of the film is The Wild Rover, sung as people finish up their pints and the credits begin to roll. The credits, like the titles, are revealed on bar mats after a pint has been lifted off them. Kevin Sheldon's credit is revealed at the bottom of an ashtray. It's another low-cost and inventive solution from the film that incorporates the elements of the pub into all aspects of the production. Following the completion of the film's restoration, a premiere was held that was attended by many of the cast and featured a reunion of the original Dubliners who would play some songs once more. They did, yeah, because well, as it went, the, the drinks reception was upstairs. I was downstairs at the time having a drink with Ronnie, but Barney and a few of them went up. Barney came down and said that Eva Braun was on the door, you know, and wouldn't let his friends in. So then he came down to get me to give a speech. And I said, I'm not going in, let's stay go. We all got in. I said to Ronnie, you're all here. You haven't played in a long time. Why don't you play? And Ronnie said, initially said no. And then he said, okay, I will. 
but only if John Sheen plays the Marino Waltz. And if anybody makes a sound, the gig is off. So everybody was hush-hush. John played the Marino Waltz. And then the Dubliners, Barney, John and Ronnie played that night, you know, uh, which I have a recording of. So it was an extraordinary night, great night, cast and crew, you know, 35 years later. You couldn't buy it. So how is it to actually sit through this 40-minute film? And is it entertaining? Absolutely it is, especially on the big screen. It's clearly a love letter to O'Donoghue's both at the time it was made and in its restoration, and serves as perhaps the best time capsule for that era of folk music in Dublin pubs, capturing the spirit, fun and anarchy of it. It's a tremendously funny film that knows exactly what it is. It's a film that knows its acting isn't top class, but plays up that factor. And it's a film whose music is top class and lets it shine. It might be the only opera I've seen that includes the Dublin wit and character so well. Then again, it might be the only opera I've seen. Now you can watch the film on YouTube. There's two versions there, but both are somewhat lacking in terms of visual quality. I'd recommend listening to it nice and loud, as the audio was such an important piece of the film. YouTube is the only game in town at the moment, but it would be wonderful if it were to be added to the Irish Film Institute player at some stage, and if you ever hear of it being screened again, I'd definitely recommend it. I'll let Shay have the last word on why film is such an important medium, especially in this context. Of all the money that ever I had, I spent it in good company. And of all the harm that ever... And, and the, the thing about film is it'll be morbid, but the films never die if they're saved. Whereas the people in them slowly out of way, you know, so in the end, you know, there was maybe four people there, but on the first finger, there would have been about 40 of them. So fill to me the parting glass. Good night and joy be with you all. Thanks very much for listening to another episode of the Publin Podcast. This one was great fun to put together. I wish every episode involved a trip to the cinema and speaking with a man as pleasant as Shay Mary Doyle. If you want to get in touch with me for any reason, to leave a bit of feedback, share a memory of this or another pub, or give us an idea for an episode, you can reach me, John, via publinie at gmail.com. If you were to rate, subscribe, or to share this podcast, it would be a huge, huge help. Thanks so much again for listening, and I'll see you all next week. I'm off for a bottle of porter. Slaunch up. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.